Lecture one, part two of Pragmatism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. Pragmatism by William James. In point of fact, it is far less an account of this actual world than a clear addition built upon it, a classic sanctuary, in which the rationalist fancy may take refuge from the intolerably confused and gothic character which mere facts present. It is no explanation of our concrete universe. It is another thing altogether, a substitute for it, a remedy, a way of escape. Its temperament, if I may use the word temperament here, is utterly alien to the temperament of existence in the concrete. Refinement is what characterizes our intellectualist philosophies. They exquisitely satisfy that craving for a refined object of contemplation which is so powerful an appetite of the mind. But I ask you in all seriousness to look abroad on this colossal universe of concrete facts, on their awful bewilderments, their surprises and cruelties, on the wildness which they show, and then to tell me whether refined is the one inevitable descriptive adjective that springs to your lips. Refinement has its place in things, true enough. But a philosophy that breathes out nothing but refinement will never satisfy the empiricist's temper of mind. It will seem rather a monument of artificiality. So we find men of science preferring to turn their backs on metaphysics as on something altogether cloistered and spectral, and practical men shaking philosophy's dust off their feet and following the call of the wild, Truly there is something a little ghastly in the satisfaction with which a pure but unreal system will fill a rationalist mind. Leibniz was a rationalist mind, with infinitely more interest in facts than most rationalist minds can show. Yet, if you wish for superficiality incarnate, we have only to read that charmingly written theodicy of his, in which he sought to justify the ways of God to man, and to prove that the world we live in is the best of possible worlds. Let me quote a specimen of what I mean. Among other obstacles to his optimistic philosophy, it falls to Leibniz to consider the number of the eternally damned that it is infinitely greater in our human case than that of those saved he assumes as a premise from the theologians, and then proceeds to argue in this way. Even then, he says, The evil will appear as almost nothing in comparison with the good if we once consider the real magnitude of the city of God. Coelius Secundus Curio has written a little book, De Amplitudine Regni Coelestis, which was reprinted not long ago but he failed to compose the extent of the kingdom of the heavens. The ancients had small ideas of the works of God. It seemed to them that only our earth had inhabitants, and even the notion of our antipodes gave them pause. The rest of the world for them consisted of some shining globes and a few crystalline spheres. But today, Whatever be the limits that we may grant refuse to the universe, we must recognize in it a countless number of globes, as big as ours or bigger, 
which have just as much right as it has to support rational inhabitants, though it does not follow that these need all be men. Our Earth is only one among the six principal satellites of our Sun. As all the fixed stars are suns, one sees how small a place among visible things our Earth takes up, since it is only a satellite of one among them. Now all these suns may be inhabited by no one but happy creatures. And nothing obliges to believe that the number of damned persons is very great. For a very few instances and samples suffice for the utility which good draws from evil. Moreover, since there is no reason to suppose that there are stars everywhere, may there not be a great space beyond the region of the stars? And this immense space, surrounding all this region, may be replete with happiness and glory. What now becomes of the consideration of our earth and of its denizens? Does it not dwindle to something incomparably less than a physical point, since our earth is but a point compared with the distance of the fixed stars? Thus the part of the universe which we know, being almost lost in nothingness compared with that which is unknown to us, but which we are yet obliged to admit, and all the evils that we know lying in this almost nothing, it follows that the evils may be almost nothing in comparison with the goods that the universe contains. Leibniz continues elsewhere. There is a kind of justice which aims neither at the amendment of the criminal, nor at furnishing an example to others, nor at the reparation of the injury. This justice is founded in pure fitness, which finds a certain satisfaction in the expiation of a wicked deed. The Socinians and Hobbes objected to this punitive justice, which is properly vindictive justice, and which God has reserved for himself at many junctures. It is always founded in the fitness of things, and satisfies not only the offended party, but all wise lookers-on, even as beautiful music or a fine piece of architecture satisfies a well-constituted mind. It is thus that the torments of the damned continue, even though they serve no longer to turn anyone away from sin, and that the rewards of the blessed continue, even though they confirm no one in good ways. The damned draw to themselves ever new penalties by their continuing sins, and the blessed attract ever fresh joys by their unceasing progress in good. Both facts are founded on the principle of fitness, for God has made all things harmonious in perfection, as I have already said. Leibniz's feeble grasp of reality is too obvious to need comment from me, it is evident that no realistic image of the experience of a damned soul had ever approached the portals of his mind. Nor had it occurred to him that the smaller is the number of samples of the genus lost soul, whom God throws as a sop to the eternal fitness, the more unequitably grounded is the glory of the blessed. What it gives us is a cold literary exercise, whose cheerful substance even hellfire does not warm. 
and do not tell me that to show the shallowness of rationalist philosophizing i have had to go back to a shallow wigpitted age the optimism of present-day rationalism sounds just as shallow to the fact-loving mind the actual universe is a thing wide open but rationalism makes systems and systems must be closed for men in practical life perfection is something far off and still in process of achievement this for rationalism is but the illusion of the finite and relative the absolute ground of things is a perfection eternally complete i find a fine example of revolt against this airy and shallow optimism of current religious philosophy in a publication of that valiant anarchistic writer morrison i swift mr swift's anarchism goes a little farther than mine does but i confess that i sympathize a good deal and some of you i know will sympathize heartily with his dissatisfaction with the idealistic optimisms now in vogue he begins his pamphlet on human submission with a series of city reporters items from newspapers suicides deaths from starvation and the like as specimens of our civilized regime for instance after trudging through the snow from one end of the city to the other in the vain hope of securing employment and with his wife and six children without food and ordered to leave their home in an upper east side tenement house because of non-payment of rent john corcoran a clerk to-day ended his life by drinking carbolic acid Corcoran lost his position three weeks ago through illness, and during the period of idleness his scanty savings disappeared. Yesterday he obtained work with a gang of city snow shovelers, but he was too weak from illness and was forced to quit after an hour's trial with the shovel. Then the weary task of looking for employment was again resumed thoroughly discouraged corcoran returned to his home last night to find his wife and children without food and the notice of dispossession on the door on the following morning he drank the poison the records of many more such cases lie before me mr swift goes on an encyclopedia might easily be filled with their kind these few i cite as an interpretation of the universe we are aware of the presence of god in his world says a writer in a recent english review the very presence of ill in the temporal order is the condition of the perfection of the eternal order writes professor royce the world and the individual part two page three hundred and eighty five the absolute is the richer for every discord and for all diversity which it embraces says f h bradley appearance and reality page two hundred and four he means that these slain men make the universe richer and that is philosophy but while professors royce and bradley and a whole host of guileless thoroughfed thinkers are unveiling reality and the absolute and explaining away evil and pain this is the condition of the only beings known to us anywhere in the universe with a developed consciousness of what the universe is what these people experience is reality 
it gives us an absolute phase of the universe it is the personal experience of those most qualified in all our circle of knowledge to have experience to tell us what is now what does thinking about the experience of these persons come to compared with directly personally feeling it as they feel it the philosophers are dealing in shades while those who live and feel know truth and the mind of mankind not yet the mind of philosophers and of the propriety class but of the great mass of the silently thinking and feeling men is coming to this view they are judging the universe as they have heretofore permitted the hierophants of religion and learning to judge them this cleveland workingman killing his children and himself another of the cited cases is one of the elemental stupendous facts of this modern world and of this universe it cannot be glozed over or minimized away by all the treatises on god and love and being helplessly existing in their haughty monumental vacuity this is one of the simple irreducible elements of this world's life after millions of years of divine opportunity and twenty centuries of christ it is in the moral world like atoms or subatoms in the physical primary indestructible and what it blazons to man is the imposture of all philosophy which does not see in such events the consummate factor of conscious experience these facts invincibly prove religion a nullity man will not give religion two thousand centuries or twenty centuries more to try itself and waste human time its time is up its probation is ended its own record ends it mankind has not sons and eternities to spare for trying out discredited systems footnote morrison i swift human submission part second philadelphia liberty press nineteen hundred and five pages four to ten such is the reaction of an empiricist mind upon the rationalist bill of fare it is an absolute no i thank you religion says mr swift is like a sleepwalker to whom actual things are blank and such though possibly less tensely charged with feeling is the verdict of every seriously inquiring amateur in philosophy to-day who turns to the philosophy professors for the wherewithal to satisfy the fullness of his nature's needs empiricist writers give him a materialism rationalists give him something religious but to that religion actual things are blank he becomes thus the judge of us philosophers tender or tough he finds us wanting none of us may treat his verdicts disdainfully for after all he is the typically perfect mind the mind the sum of whose demands is greatest the mind whose criticisms and dissatisfactions are fatal in the long run it is at this point that my own solution begins to appear 
I offer the oddly named thing pragmatism as a philosophy that can satisfy both kinds of demand. It can remain religious like the rationalisms, but at the same time like the empiricisms it can preserve the richest intimacy with facts. I hope I may be able to leave many of you with as favorable an opinion of it as I preserve myself. Yet, as I am near the end of my hour, I will not introduce pragmatism bodily now. I will begin with it on the stroke of the clock next time. I prefer at the present moment to return a little on what I have said. If any of you here are professional philosophers, and some of you I know to be such, you will doubtless have felt my discourse so far to have been crude in an unpardonable, nay, in an almost incredible degree tender-minded and tough-minded what a barbaric disjunction and in general when philosophy is all compacted of delicate intellectualities and subtleties and scrupulosities and when every possible sort of combination and transition obtains within its bounds what a brutal caricature and reduction of highest things to the lowest possible expression is it to represent its field of conflict as a sort of rough and tumble fight between two hostile temperaments what a childishly external view and again how stupid it is to treat the abstractness of rationalist systems as a crime and to damn them because they offer themselves as sanctuaries and places of escape rather than as prolongations of the world of facts are not all our theories just remedies and places of escape and if philosophy is to be religious how can she be anything else than a place of escape from the crassness of reality's surface what better thing can she do than raise us out of our animal senses and show us another and a nobler home for our minds in that great framework of ideal principles subtending all reality which the intellect divines? How can principles and general views ever be anything but abstract outlines? Was Cologne Cathedral built without an architect's plan on paper? Is refinement in itself an abomination? Is concrete rudeness the only thing that's true? Believe me, I feel the full force of the indictment. The picture I have given is indeed monstrously oversimplified and rude. But like all abstractions, it will prove to have its use. If philosophers can treat the life of the universe abstractly, they must not complain of an abstract treatment of the life of philosophy itself. In point of fact, the picture I have given is, however coarse and sketchy, literally true. Temperaments, with their cravings and refusals, do determine men in their philosophies, and always will. The details of systems may be reasoned out piecemeal, and when the student is working at a system, he may often forget the forest for the single tree. But when labor is accomplished, the mind always performs its big summarizing act, and the system forthwith stands over against one like a living thing, with that strange simple note of individuality which haunts our memory, like the wraith of the man when a friend or enemy of ours is dead. Not only Walt Whitman could write, Who touches this book 
touches a man. The books of all the great philosophers are like so many men. Our sense of an essential personal flavor in each one of them, typical but indescribable, is the finest fruit of our own accomplished philosophic education. What the system pretends to be is a picture of the great universe of God. What it is, and also flagrantly, is the revelation of how intensely odd the personal flavor of some fellow creature is. Once reduced to these terms, and all our philosophies get reduced to them in minds made critical by learning, our commerce with the systems reverts to the informal, to the instinctive human reaction of satisfaction or dislike. We grow as peremptory in our rejection or admission as when a person presents himself as a candidate for our favor. Our verdicts are couched in as simple adjectives of praise or dispraise. We measure the total character of the universe as we feel it, against the flavor of the philosophy proffered us, and one word is enough. Statt der lebedigen Natur, we say, da Gott die Menschen schuf hinein. That nebulous concoction, that wooden, that straight-laced thing, that crabbed artificiality, that musty schoolroom product, that sick man's dream, away with it, away with all of them, impossible, impossible. Our work over the details of his system is indeed what gives us our resultant impression of the philosopher, but it is on the resultant impression itself that we react. Expertness in philosophy is measured by the definiteness of our summarizing reactions, by the immediate perceptive epithet with which the expert hits such complex objects off. But great expertness is not necessary for the epithet to come. Few people have definitely articulated philosophies of their own. But almost everyone has his own peculiar sense of a certain total character in the universe, and of the inadequacy fully to match it of the peculiar system that he knows. They don't just cover his world. One will be too dapper, another too pedantic, a third too much of a joblot of opinions, a fourth too morbid, and a fifth too artificial, or what not. At any rate, he and we know offhand that such philosophers are out of plumb and out of key and out of whack and have no business to speak up in the universe's name. Plato, Locke, Spinoza, Mill, Caird, Hegel, I prudently avoid names nearer home. I am sure that to many of you, my hearers, these names are little more than reminders of as many curious personal ways of falling short. It would be an obvious absurdity if such ways of taking the universe were actually true. We philosophers have to reckon with such feelings on our part. In the last resort, I repeat, it will be by them that all our philosophies shall ultimately be judged. The finally victorious way of looking at things will be the most completely impressive way to the normal run of minds. One word more namely about philosophies necessarily being abstract outlines. There are outlines and outlines. Outlines are buildings that are fat, conceived in the cube by their planner, 
and outlines of buildings invented flat on paper with the aid of rule and compass these remain skinny and emaciated even when set up in stone and mortar and the outline already suggests that result an outline in itself is meagre truly but it does not necessarily suggest a meagre thing it is the essential meagreness of what is suggested by the usual rationalistic philosophies that moves empiricists to their gesture of rejection the case of herbert spencer's system is much to the point here rationalists feel his fearful array of insufficiencies his dry schoolmaster temperament the hurdy-gurdy monotony of him his presence for cheap makeshifts in argument his lack of education even in mechanical principles and in general the vagueness of all his fundamental ideas his whole system wooden as if knocked together out of cracked hemlock boards and yet the half of england wants to bury him in westminster abbey why why does spencer call out so much reverence in spite of his weakness in rationalistic eyes why should so many educated men who feel that weakness you and i perhaps wish to see him in the abbey notwithstanding simply because we feel his heart to be in the right place philosophically his principles may be all skin and bone but at any rate his books try to mould themselves upon the particular shape of this particular world's carcass the noise of facts resounds through all his chapters the citations of fact never cease he emphasizes facts turns his face towards their quarter and that is enough it means the right kind of thing for the empiricist mind the pragmatistic philosophy of which i hope to begin talking in my next lecture preserves as cordial a relation with facts and unlike spencer's philosophy it neither begins nor ends by turning positive religious constructions out of doors it treats them cordially as well i hope i may lead you to find it just the mediating way of thinking that you require End of lecture one.